Hello, I'm Catherine Evans. I'm assistant professor at the Center for Criminology and Sociolegal Studies at the University of Toronto. And I'm delighted to be, uh, to be once again back at the Center for Ethics virtual seminar series. Thank you so much to Marcus Duber uh, for having me and especially for having uh, Rebecca Woods, my charming interlocutor for the next uh, half hour or so. So I'll pass it over to Rebecca. Hi, thanks Catherine. Thanks Marcus. Um, it's great to be back with you, Catherine. Um, for uh, part two of our ongoing conversation. Um, uh, my name is Rebecca Woods. I'm an assistant professor in history and the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology at the University of Toronto. Um, uh, last time Catherine and I were on, I introduced myself as somebody who specializes in science, environment, and animals, and that's true, but I also wear another hat at U of T, which is as a historian of technology. Um, and so when it was my turn to um, uh, be the talkie as opposed to the questioner, um, the answerer, um, I started thinking about what might be uh, an interesting conversation to have with Catherine um, around questions about technology and the current COVID pandemic. Um, I was, um, I'm by no means a news junkie. And so I tend to get my news the really old fashioned way by the radio, the CBC. And as I was listening to the CBC in the last couple of weeks, I, I, I um, started picking up on um, the conversation that's been happening now for a while around the, the, the hopes um, and the kind of um, eventuality, one hopes of a vaccine for, um, for COVID-19. And it struck me as I was listening to the way that that the COVID vaccine, the future COVID vaccine was being discussed on the CDC and also in other kind of mainstream um, news outlets that, um, that there's a lot of kind of magical thinking that's going around, on around the way that a particular technology like a vaccine can solve a really complex social problem like a global pandemic. And so that's basically what we're gonna discuss today. Perfect. So let's get some definitions out on the table first. Um, so what is a technology from a historical perspective and especially from the perspective of someone who's involved in science technology studies, who thinks critically about these things? Because technology is this, this sort of fluid concept that has a very different colloquial meaning, I think. Absolutely. And the colloquial meaning of technology, the kind of, um, you know, the kind of accepted public meaning, it, it tends to skew towards one side of a spectrum that specialists in science technology studies or the history of technology um, used to make sense of technology. So at one end, technology refers to, and this is the kind of colloquial end and, and also in some sense part of the, the more specialist spectrum, it tends to be associated with really complex, um, uh, complicated black boxed engineered type objects, whether those are our phones or our laptops, automobiles, often these are um, like I said, complex um, 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 parts that are connected to infrastructures. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the idea of a basic tool. So something like a hammer or a stone ax and historians of technology. And one of my favorite on this topic is um, an historian of technology called David Nye, who thinks about technology connected to the story of human evolution and how something as simple as, you know, a stone ax can be a technology, can be a tool that's used in social context that's kind of built with social purposes, whether um, whether it's, you know, like a um, moon going rocket or a very simple tool, a pencil, whatever. So um, 
you'll find like, depending on which historian of technology you talk to, some of us gravitate towards the kind of technologies or tools ends and others towards the technology as a concept that should be reserved as it emerged in the 19th century to refer to these kind of more complex systems. So a vaccine then would be fairly smack dab in the middle of the critical conversation about what counts as a technology. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the vaccine, vaccines as technologies are a really interesting case because they're not, they're material, but their material nature is ephemeral, right? They, they um, kind of absorb into the body, become part of the body, as opposed to like another kind of medical technology that is durable and material like a prosthetic limb, um, a pair of glasses, whatever. Um, a vaccine is something that's kind of, it's like other kinds of technologies, it's it's designed to do something. It's designed to um, to give the body the right kinds of um, antibodies to fight off particular viruses. But it doesn't it doesn't. It's not something you can kind of pick up and put down again and again, like like other kinds of tools. So it's a almost more. It's a it's produced like other forms of technologies, right? As part of these like kind of modern supply chains. But the there's a way in which the association of the word technology with a vaccine is slightly more metaphorical, mm -hmm. maybe. So, so vaccines are technologies, and and I think you know a lot of the scholarship talks about technologies as things that that occupy a disproportionate place in our mind's eye. That they are these objects of fantasy, uh, that we infuse them with meaning and power that perhaps is disproportionate or unrealistic based on their actual capacities. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we get to the no magic bullet, which is part of the- Yeah, yeah. So certainly technologies are, are like fetishes in the kind of classical, like um, psychological and anthropological ethnographic sense of the term. They're like objects that you're right, that we invest with all of these kinds of meanings. The no magic bullet, um, I I, um, I borrowed the little title for today um, from this one of the like the you know absolute must reads in the history of medicine, which is No Magic Bullet by Alan Brandt, written in the mid 1980s, um, revised and expanded in the midst of the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. It's a social history of venereal disease in um, North America, in the United States, and he um, analyzes the way in which um, complex socio-cultural phenomena like epidemic outbreaks um, are reduced to a kind of biological category like good health, bad health, normal body, abnormal body, and the search for particular um, uh, for particular specific treatments to target particular um, infections as as the kind of um, the magic bullet, right? Um, and and he calls his book No Magic Bullet, and, and this is why I liked it for our, our title for today, because his point is that these disease outbreaks, disease, disease as a phenomenon is much more than just a biological entity, and it cannot be fixed by, um, an, by a, just by an antibody, by a kind of constructed antibody, that it requires um, that these are moral events in um, in social history. They're social events. They're economic events. As we, you know, these are things that this series has been exploring in great depth, and that we're all becoming increasingly aware of as we live through the pandemic. How much more it is than just the circulation of the virus. Um, and he points out how how like supposed magic bullets treatments um, work or do not work often 
they often kind of succeed or fail based on the social response to the epidemic itself. Right. So thinking about that a little bit further, um, I guess this is a chicken and egg question, but so Brandt's argument is in part that we in the 20th century have adopted a really biomedical vision of what a disease is. It's a dysfunction in an organic system that can be palliated through these sort of, tar ideally through these targeted uh, biological interventions. So is it that our, we, we seek treatments or vaccines or technologies that fit our imagination of the disease itself? Or is it that the technology shapes the way that we think of, um, of what's happening to us? Or is it an iterative process? I can guess which one you might say. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, as a historian, uh, you'll be familiar with this, like I like to sort of sit on the fence and be like, everything's complicated. Everything's contingent, right? I mean, I think that, it, I think that there's a way in which it depends case by case. Um, and as a, you know, I'm sort of hesitant to come down hard uh, because I'm not a historian of medicine. So this is like, I'm kind of pulling from a different realm um, to, to, to think about my, one of my own kind of home disciplines, the history of technology. But your question reminds me of something else that I really like um, from the historian David Nye. And, and we'll have links to this, this, these books that we're talking about. Um, this is a book called Technology Matters, where he just kind of thinks critically about central, 10 central questions to do with technology and history. Um, and, and I'm paraphrasing him, not quoting him verbatim, but he says something like, um, you know, we think that necessity is the mother of invention. We think that our needs create their solutions. But in fact, in the history of technology, it, it's often the reverse. It's often the solution that creates the problem in need of itself, right? So I think that that speaks to the kind of iterative, the, um, the classic chicken and egg, right? Um, and it also describes a, a lot about the way technological solutions um, kind of uh, the, the kind of um, shape of the role they play in history, how that takes shape, how um, very often a kind of innovation or an invention um, um, the, you know, the, the producers, the marketers of it have to like work hard to get people to buy into it because innovation often solves problems that are yet to come, right? And that's how like innovators would describe what they're doing. So you can think of like all of these things like the, um, you know, um, I'm trying to think of a good one here. Um, lots of kind of like inventions that were invented decades or generations before they were taken up because people thought they were like weird little um weird little like um displays in their at the moment they originated and then later it's like we come to rely on them and so we think well how could those people in the past have been so dumb to not see the potential of something like you know the telephone or whatever maybe not the telephone and um and and then only then do we think of them as a solution to the problem right they kind of create their own markets. So that reminds me a little bit of, of what Nye says also in the same book you're talking about when he discusses the link between technology and deterministic thinking. 
So do you see and sorry, I didn't catch determin that determinism, deterministic yes. thinking? So uh, that would be the idea that, you know, television was inevitable, that right. the phone was inevitable, that we would have a need and then we would eventually seek the technology to meet the need. And this mm -hmm. would sort of naturally happen through the evolution of human society. That's actually a really common argument um, made in legal history circles too, right? That when society becomes complex uh, or, or a need emerges, then suddenly we develop laws that allow us to do whatever it is we want to do. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of emphasis on the reverse, that once you have the ability to create a certain kind of technology or a certain kind of law, then society sort of rises to meet it, to match it, to interweave itself with it. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk about determinism. So do you, do you see in your analysis of the discussion of vaccines and other technologies here, a, a sort of reliance on the notion that because our need is so great, the technology will come about? Yeah. Yeah, there, I, absolutely. There's this kind of like technology as savior element to it. It's like, well, there's, you know, we, we're seeing kind of firsthand all of us, almost regardless of where we are in the world, how difficult it is to um, contain an outbreak just by con constraining human behavior. And so there's, there's this kind of, and I think it's a very understandable turn to um, something else, right? Like I totally get the impulse to want an ex like an, an escape hatch from this. And and thinking about the vaccine as, a, as an escape hatch is, is not illogical, right? Like we have one of the, I mean, we could talk about the um, contemporary anti-vaxxer anti movement, which is kind of throwing um, this part of the last sort of 70 years of human history into, um, into question, but our, we right now are incredibly fortunate to have to live in a world where measles, whooping cough, all of these childhood chicken pox, as well as more um, really more devastating scourges like smallpox and polio are, are contained or even in the case of smallpox, like fully eradicated by vaccination programs. I mean, vaccines work when everybody buys into them. We're also getting like a really, um, a really kind of um, close look at how vaccines are developed because so much seems to ride on uh, on developing a vaccine for COVID-19. So we're seeing precisely how intricate and difficult and challenging and kind of fraught with complications in all kinds of ways the development of a vaccine is. So in one sense, like it's, it's like now it makes sense to look to a vaccine as a solution to to the pandemic, and I, um, I mean, I actually think that I don't think things are going to snap back to normal after we're all vac. Whenever we all get to be vaccinated, but I do think that until the, until like you know enough of the um, po the global population is vaccinated, like things are going to be we're going to be in 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 and out of this limbo, right? But the other kind of what makes me um, kind of wary of this magical thinking going on is the way that technological fixes as a kind of broader category have played out in you know, the last 40, 50, 200, who knows how long span of human history. Um, and the technological fix is like related to that notion of determinism, related to the idea that technology shapes the kind of flow of history. It's the like, it's the sense that like, well, human, you know, look, look at how power, look at what we can achieve, right? With our advanced engineering, with all of our skills, with all of our ingenuity, we must be able to solve like anything that um, faces us. And this is an idea that really um, kind of 
gained traction and, and took hold during the Cold War, and particularly in the kind of great acceleration moment in the post-World War II period, where the world's population was growing um, dramatically, but so were standards of living for many, many, many people, particularly in the global north. And um, you know, all kinds of technological innovations from nuclear power to the so-called green revolution in agriculture seem to be solving these really intractable pro problems of you know, um, nutrition, malnutrition, famine, um, the like the you know the need for cheap energy, nuclear um, um, nuclear power promised energy so cheap it couldn't be metered, which of course we know it's not that simple now, right? With hindsight, we can see that these solutions like nuclear power created their own problems, like the storage and disposal of nuclear waste, and that the you know the green revolution has led to all kinds of um, other kinds of complex problems like. Uh, extensive monoculture requires ever more um, intensive uh, insecticides and genetically modified organisms and so forth. So there's like um, a way in which a technology that's supposed to solve this really complex problem produces its own kind of, um, you know, second, third, fourth, like ongoing waves of solutions in need of problem, Pro problem more, more things to solve, right? Can you think of some of the, or just speculate wildly about some of the potential problems that you could imagine might come along with a vaccine program? Like, I mean, uh, we haven't faced this particular pathogen before, but we have had problems delivering targeted therapies and vaccines in other contexts with respect to disease. So can you think about, historically speaking, what are the things that we should worry about if we are so fortunate as to develop a vaccine, what are the pitfalls or the potentially sort of the spiraling consequences that you can imagine we would have to face? Yeah, I mean, one, you know, so there's a couple of things and, and um, some of it has to do with um, just with like basic supply chains, right? Like vaccines are, um, they're ephemeral, but they also require like very specific kind of um, wrappings, right? To get them to the people who need them. So that, is extremely complicated and can see, um, and and I know that like you know specialists are already starting to talk about like setting up the supply chain now so that if there's a vaccine in 12 months or whatever it can just roll out. I think there are really and I think a lot of people are really worried about access to a vaccine, right? Like just because it's there doesn't mean everybody gets it, and then just because it's there doesn't mean everybody wants it. Like we've seen again in the last. You know, generation or so, the rise of um, the anti-vaxxer movement and how um, problematic that's been. Because um, you know, if, the, if a significant portion of the population is not vaccinated, then a, then a, um, an epidemic can reemerge. Um, and I think, with respect to the the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus in particular, like um, uh, one thing we were just chatting about before this started is. Uh, you know, one another reason to hope is that it does seem to be a stable, um, genetically stable, right? Relatively genetically stable. It's not mutating as fast as as um, as geneticists worried it might be as it circulates around the globe. So, you know, with luck, we're not facing and the the kind of um, the other major kind of um challenge to these wonder wondrous technologies of the great acceleration which is penicillin and the rise of um resistant microbes like these superbugs 
that live in hospital environments, for example. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things. Yeah. Um, so putting the vaccine slightly to the side, I think even in a shorter time frame within the last few months, we've seen lots of things floated as potential magic bullets with varying degrees of enthusiasm. So we have on the sort of chemical sort of frontier, we have hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, and then other technologies like ventilators, the hunt for the portable, cheap, um, easily producible ventilator, then all of this mooting of smartphone apps and wearable technologies to facilitate surveillance. Um, are you noticing any particular, uh, any trends in the way that we've talked about this in, the, in this crisis that are noteworthy? Or do you detect any difference between the way that we talk about biological technologies like, like therapeutics and vaccines versus um, machines? That's a good question. Um, I mean, machines, I, I guess one thing I would say is that the kind of machinic technology feels more optional, right? So it's like, uh, you know, you know, well, um, download the app or not, right? It's up to you to decide whether or not you want to opt in. Whereas the vaccine is talked about at least publicly as if everybody will opt into it. Um, you know, we've just discussed some reasons like why that might not work out one way or another. I also think that the other, like one of the other big distinctions I see um, that's probably glaringly obvious to all of us, right, is around issues of privacy. Like we're not, even as we've kind of um, been asleep at the wheel while big tech companies have gathered so much valuable data about our everyday everything with our smartphones, we're still like, um, at least in Canada and the rest of North America and much of um, the, the global north, like we, we claim to be really um, worried about privacy. And we are comfortable because we're conditioned already for, you know, much longer than the last 20 years to, um, to give um, the, medical the medical industry and the medical profession access to our private information, right? So like we're all comfortable, you know, um, the kind of like biostatistics that um, have historically been kept about populations like we're that the vaccine seems to kind of sit next sit in that category of like your medical records that your doctor has access to um, that go on file somewhere as opposed to like your movements around your city and who you're who you're bumping into or who you're standing within six feet of that feels like an invasion of privacy even though both are right both are like really intimate um, ways in which the state touches our lives. Very interesting. Um, it, this does remind me of, uh, again, Magic Bullets, Alan Brandt is echoing in my head a lot today because, you know, his book is, is primarily about venereal diseases mm -hmm. and how difficult it has been to eradicate or even control venereal diseases compared to other infectious pathogens. So, you know, it's easy enough or it has been easy, easy enough to, to control diphtheria um, and TB, but it's much, much harder, at least in a privileged Western context, to crush herpes, gonorrhea, chlamydia. And one of the reasons he argues that this has been the case is because these diseases are so tremendously freighted in our consciousness mm -hmm. and because they're associated with the most private aspects of our lives. And so I'm wondering about, about whether or not we should think about coronavirus as fundamentally more similar in terms of its social life, more similar to TB 
or is it more similar in the way that people are talking about it and thinking about it to venereal diseases in the sense that, you know, does it carry stigma? Is it seen as an invasion of privacy to control it? Anything like that? I think that, you know, that the like, I think that the moralizing are around, and, and Brent's totally right about this, right? That the moralizing around sexually transmitted infections um, um, has hindered, you know, so so like even where there is a, a magic bullet, like a vaccine for herpes, the herpes virus, people don't get it because um, they, you know, they don't, they, um, they, the fear is that that would be seen to be um, too promiscuous or in some other way, like socially transgressive. There's definitely a lot of moralizing going on right now around COVID, but it tends to be around people's social behavior because this is a disease, this is a virus that is incredibly adept at like exploiting our social tendencies as human beings, right? We are social, you, like you, this is a real um, stark reminder that we're social animals, that we wanna like kind of congregate in groups. And it seems to be that like the more people there, the merrier the virus is, like groups of 50 are um, a dream come true for it. So there's moralizing, but it's around quarantine and it's around like the um, transgressions against the collective and it, not in terms of like moral purity, but in terms of the perceived social benefit of like everybody adhering to um, social distancing regulations and so forth. So, and I think TB again is like, I'm trying to think now of like what the analog might be in it. And I guess maybe, um, you know, down the line, there'll be somebody, a historian of medicine on here who could give, who, who could who could pull that up. But again, TB, tuberculosis is like, that had a different kind of stigma. Again, I, my sense is that the stigma here is, is about bad behavior, about, like about flouting rules, mm -hmm. um, not about being too promiscuous or um, in the case of tuberculosis, I mean, you might have a better sense of this because it's your time period and kind of your 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 genre, the, Br the British world of the romantic tubercular um, patient, but um, but the, the stigma there had to do with like poverty often. Um, Just further, uh, further lessons, I guess, in the, that each disease has its own narrative history. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that there are these familiar beats in the life cycle of an epidemic or a pandemic from sort of fear and denial to crisis to eventual moral reckoning and recrimination very often. Yeah. But each disease also has a unique social cultural position, um, including its, its sort of emotional resonance. And presumably then the way that we, if we ever do find a vaccine, the way we try to sell people on taking it and buying into whatever project, just as with now, when we're trying to tell people they need to socially distance, a lot of that, it strikes me, will have to be in conversation with the social imaginary of this particular illness and what it means to us more broadly. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. You're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah. And it is like, as you know, as historians, I think we're like, it's, it's a bizarre experience to be part of like that story as it unfolds, as opposed to looking, you know, from your comfortable seat in the present with your, your clear analytical mind, like looking back and thinking about it critically. Speaking of critics, though, before we, we signed on, I did a quick Google um, for magic bullet in the news. And once I had weeded out all the stories about juicers, um, I found a whole bunch 
in which they listed various things that were hailed in the titles of these news articles from around the world as not magic bullets. So the things that I found just today quickly were a recent farming funding package in the UK, uh, fever scanners at Canadian airports, the prospect thereof, vaccines, of course, but also e-commerce as a solution to um, struggling retail enterprises and remdesivir and various things. So do you think that we're at all better um, now than perhaps we were in the past at disabusing ourselves of the magical thinking around magic bullets? Or is the fact that this phrase is in common currency something to be sort of pleased about or or was there similar you know or are we no better and we're just we've picked up the magic bullet sort of phraseology uh, it's interesting i mean like part i think partly that suggests how kind of mobile and fluid metaphors are um but i think that also it's a reminder that the kind of like um you know more i, I maybe cynical is too strong but the kind of more ironic twist on a term like magical bullet magic bullet or technological fix that that comes early Right, because they, you know, because these kinds of like um, these magic bullets, right? They never, um, they never like live up to their promise and their their hope, or rarely, they rarely do. Um, or if they do, the kind of you know the, the 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 kind of route they take to get there is very different than what we expect. Um, so the kind of the um, the ironic twist comes quite early, I think, in the in the origin. Of a term like magic bullet or technological fix so like you know I, I mentioned that the idea of a technological fix gained currency during the cold war and like in the 1960s and already by the 1970s pe many people were responding to it as um, critically ironically cynically right because um these because um you know because these problems and challenges i think social problems challenges of this scale are so complex that this, any kind of solution requires, um, you know, more than one bullet, more than one fix, and many, many different kinds of um, efforts. Mm -hmm. On a sort of on a, a different level, um, one of the things that Nye talks about is the gendering of the idea of technology. So he talks about this vision of you know, there were all of these things that we might now have called technologies, but that weren't called technologies then, sort of then being in the long, long ago. Um, but slowly, as the idea of technology emerged and consolidated itself over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, it came to be associated with men and men's work. So the earliest polytechnic institutes in the United States, including your alma mater, MIT, founded in 1861, did not admit women and so was producing all of these qualified engineers, but none of them were women. There were still female engineers working in the States because you could become an engineer through experience rather than credentialing at that time. But still, there's a, there's a sort of a trajectory he charts with the rise of the idea of technology and the idea that technologies are male domains that are sort of mm -hmm. ideally suited either to men or to masculinity more generally. And yet a lot of the discussion of the consequences of this pandemic has been about its effects on women women's exclusion from work, women's uh, outsized role in the service industry. Mm -hmm. um, also this interesting discussion of whether or not countries with female leaders have done better than countries with male leaders. So I'm wondering if there's any sort of interesting gender wrinkles that you detect in the discourses around technology uh, in this case and how it might be used to save us. So, um, sorry, I missed the, like, you're wondering if I detect any interesting gender roles or reversals? Either. I mean, when we talk about 
the vaccine, who's going to get it, who's going to develop it, who's going to communicate to us about it. Is there anything we might want to notice as, as critical folks about the way that gender is being deployed in this in this space that you know is highly gendered, at least historically? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think that. Yeah, uh, that you know, the, I mean, the story that you just laid out of like technology becoming a kind of masculinized domain, that's the story of almost every profession in a way, you know, there's all kinds of complicated phenomena around gender and work, but by and large as work becomes masculinized, it takes on higher status. And if it becomes feminized, it takes on lower status. I mean, is that gonna have some, well, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought, I hadn't thought to think about um, the COVID vaccine as a technology and book or as particularly gendered, but you know, the um, you know the 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 there are many heroes of the of the coronavirus pandemic. Many of them are women, right? Like as you said, there are um, women are disproportionately represented in, in caregiving um, um, domains as well, like as professional carers as well as um, as well as nurses and so forth. Um, most of the uh, labs I've read about developing vaccines are run by men, but I don't think, I mean, I think that, I mean, we've come a long way. I, I'm hopeful that we've come a long way in the last, even in the last like three years around gender roles and in, in the public eye and that, um, you know, that maybe there'll be, there'll be good surprises as opposed to um, disappointments around this. Yeah, there have been some interesting news reports that have been trickling out. And, and a lot of this is sort of with the caveat that our data is, is bad. But, you know, this idea that men, particularly younger men, are more likely than women are as a population to violate quarantine, that women tend to be, and this is probably stereotypical, but this has been mobilized a lot, that women are more cautious. And it certainly seems to be true that at least within the anti-vaxxer movement, that a lot of mm -hmm. technology rejectivists are women. Mm -hmm. That there's a strong suspicion of Western biomedicine among a certain sort of female population. Um, and obviously this is grossly reductive, but I wonder if there's something to do with that long history of alienation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that the two that like that, you know, that the anti that some of that like impulse that suspicion comes out of an incredibly sexist the suspicion that kind of that that is connected to the anti-vaxxer movement and the role that mothers, the kind of um, authority that being a mother gives you to speak about about on issues of vaccine and like the health of children right perceived anyway that the um the the i mean the sexism of the medical industry in the 1950s 40s 50s and 60s is like really difficult to overestimate so um um so i think that um you know in a way you can see where that comes from but again i also think that um that 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 the medical profession we you know we have in canada today is is has come a long way one hopes. Um, I suppose all of this is just to just to go back to to reinforcing your your sort of core insight that you began with that just finding a technology, just finding a vaccine is only the very, very first step, despite all of the tremendous amount of work and all of the different communities who have to buy in to even make that happen. If you're trying to then promulgate it 
uh, socially that all of these things, you know, especially trust and buy-in and perceptions of safety and on all of these issues, you know, are going to have to be addressed with a lot of sensitivity to things like gender and global location and racial identity and socioeconomic status, right? That there are all of these things that we're going to have to think about that, you know, this disease is showing the cracks in the social sort of landscape. But it seems to me that the technology that will solve it will also be prone to falling into those cracks, right? Yeah, because technologies are inherently social, right? Like there is no, there is no technology that stands outside of its social context, whether in terms of its use, its application or its production. So we're, we're back at the chicken and egg in a way. That's right. Which is a good place to start and a good place to end. <laughs> I think so. Um, well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for sharing your insights and thanks again to the Center for Ethics for hosting us today. Thanks, Catherine. This was really fun. Thank you.